So you've been here practicing for some time now, all of you. And there are many different realms of exploration, of cultivation, of development and of discovery that we can explore or encounter, pursue perhaps, develop. And what I'd like to speak about this morning is what I regard as very much the heart of the Dharma. The teachings that we have the remarkable good fortune to have the opportunity to explore. And these teachings and this practice that we're engaged in here is very much concerned with the central human endeavor of seeking happiness, peace, freedom. This underlying theme, current and orientation that really is at the heart of our lives. And (coughs) (coughs) so deeply we and in fact all human beings, all beings in fact long for, yearn for and are drawn towards the possibility of freedom inner peace, of happiness. And yet, we also see in the world, in others around us, and of course, in ourselves, that at times it's very clear that there is so much suffering. That there really is at times a a profound sense of being entangled or bound in our lives, or by our lives. And it's this that we're ultimately concerned with. It's this that the Dharma teachings are directed towards the resolution of. And so, in terms of what we're really here for, and we could say really here for in our retreats, or in our practice on retreat, equally really here for in our lives. What is it that gives the most uh, profound meaning to this human existence? (coughs) It's really to understand what's at the heart of it all. The Buddha spoke about ignorance as the basis of the craving that leads to suffering. And we, I'm sure, have heard, read and contemplated these teachings in different ways. Understanding that there is a an essential blindness, we could say, or a fundamental blindness that often translated as ignorance. But the word is avidya, which essentially means not to not see, to be unable to see what is true, what is real, to not see the way things are. 
And in that not seeing, there is a movement of craving that leads to attachment, and in that attachment, a, a binding and a bondage, a binding to experience and a bondage in life that is profoundly painful for our hearts and our minds and deeply unsatisfying. But not inevitable. The heart of the Dharma teachings are pointing to the potential that is there for each of us to realize the release of the heart, the freedom of mind and being that is really our human birthright. So, what we notice, together with the sense of perhaps at times dissatisfaction or some recognition of some sense of feeling bound, limited, that we encounter at times, perhaps frequently, perhaps not so frequently, there's a There's a sense of looking for, a sense of looking towards that expresses itself in what we could call restlessness. It's uh, something we hear about regularly as one of the five hindrances and we think about it as sort of kind of like the, uh, you know, junior school, kindergarten. I'm not quite sure what word you use here. Primary school, we'd say, in New Zealand. Um, Is it junior school or...? Yeah, okay. It's sort of like, oh, that's the stuff you do. You know, work through that restlessness stuff and then you can do some meditation, you know. It's interesting to reflect that in the way the Buddha speaks about the different challenges that we encounter in meditation, restlessness does not disappear from the human heart and mind until really pretty much the point of full enlightenment. It's something that's recognized and described as continuing even in the, some of the deep and profound stages of awakening that the Buddha's teachings point us to. That restlessness is something we really need to look at because of this. It's, it's not actually just a, that little sort of fidgety energy that we sometimes get in our bodies and minds. Of course, that's an expression of it. But ultimately, restlessness is born of a sense of something not quite being right. Something seemingly missing or absent. Something needed or something incomplete. The sense of, it's just not quite as it should be, but if I just adjust it a little bit, if I just move in that way, if I just get a little more quiet and calm, or develop a little more loving kindness, you know, so sort of spiritual restlessness. It's not like I'm thinking I I need a new house or a a better car, although they might be nice things to have. But the the deeper inner restlessness is premised on on essentially a sense of dissatisfaction with the condition we find ourselves in and a belief that there is something fundamentally 
wrong with or missing from the truth of our experience. And so there's the sense of a looking for, of a seeking after, of an orientation towards something that is other than what is immediately here, we could say. Some years ago, when I was not that long married, I was staying for a few months at the house of a friend who was away, and with my wife Catherine, we were just sort of, I guess, squatting in a sense, although they knew we were there. So house-sitting, I guess, is the informal word. And uh, one day after supper, we just washed up the dishes. And uh, I was on the telephone. There was a call and I was speaking to someone. And I had this sort of habit of just sort of fidgeting, twiddling with this ring that was on my finger now for, you know, at that point, just two, three years. So it still felt like a relatively novel thing, strangely, even after two, three years. And, and as I was on the phone, I just put my hand there and realised that the place where my ring was, it was missing. It wasn't there. And there was this moment of, oh my gosh, it's fallen off. And I was on the phone, but I just covered the mouthpiece and quickly said to Catherine, don't tip the dishwater out, just in case. And then I finished the phone call. We went, and I looked in, wasn't in the dishwater. I started looking around. And it was this very strange sense of impending tragedy, like, I've lost the ring. And I could feel this place on my finger, this shiny, soft, smooth place where it used to live. And I was sort of touching that. And every time I'd touch it, I'd feel this, it's gone, it's lost, oh no. And there was this real sort of kind of profound distress associated with the loss of the ring. And, you know, Catherine and I said, can you help me look for it? Where is it? We were looking around the house. Then after some time, she looked at me and she said, it's the wrong hand you're looking at. And I've been looking at it. It's not there. It's gone. And this really profound distress. And the moment of... Huh? It's on the other hand? That's where it is? And it was there all along. It was never gone from that moment. From that place. And... <coughs> And what particularly was kind of impactful and shocking in that, apart from the, the kind of the whole completely constructed sense of, you know, trauma that was arising for me in the loss of the ring, was the fact that I had this real sense of where it was missing. And I could feel that it had been on this finger. And it had never been on this finger in its life. There was some profoundly deluded thing happening. And it was a remarkable teaching for me. Because, in fact, in my desperate looking at where I thought it was missing from, and my looking for it everywhere else, it was actually literally impossible for me to see. I don't know if you can see, but this, this, I couldn't see it in my hand. It was obscured by the activity of the focus on the missingness, the lostness, and the looking for it. And so much 
of what perpetuates the condition of being lost in what we call samsara, in the sense of an absence of what we're looking for. So much of suffering is bound in this tendency, this orientation to be looking elsewhere. When, in fact, what we're really most interested in, although we don't yet perhaps fully know that, what really our heart is called to, to know deeply, is what is right here. Is not other than just this that is the condition of immediacy and has the potential to be known directly. Looking outside of where we are, beyond what is here, beyond what is now, that looking is the expression of blindness and that looking outside of where we are is in fact that which obscures our natural capacity to see. And so we can acknowledge, we can recognize, and we might even see it here, you know, we're coming, in one sense we could say in the heart of the retreat with just, uh, you know, a few more days of practice, but all the, the, the development, the cultivation, the movement of of heart and mind and and bringing oneself again into into this moment and into our practice as we have done over weeks and maybe months here, each of you, each of everyone here. And yet then we can also notice the way in which, well, it's just a few days to go, you know, and the mind starts to think about what's coming next. Oh, my life out there and what's going to happen and the recounting of the, either the... uh, you know, the tragedies or the triumphs of our retreat. And what happens if we don't see that that's another movement away? To really be here, to really give yourself to this that is here, that is now, that is immediate, and see what comes of this giving yourself wholeheartedly in this way. Because there's a fascination we have with the movement. With the sense of something other or something more or something different. Or even just a better version of the same. There's a fascination we have. It's attractive, it's exciting, it has vitality often or a sense of potentiality. And yet we can also be lost in it. Profoundly lost in that movement. It offers a hope of something other, something more, something different. This movement in time. The sense of the possibility of something other than this is what actually transfixes the mind to a large extent in its fascination with something other than what is here. When I was uh, teaching some years ago at the Retreat Center in Massachusetts, Insight Meditation Society, um, which some of you will know and have uh, had the good fortune to visit, a wonderful uh, retreat center. Um, 
the daughter of one of the administrators, a little girl of about four or five years old, was uh, just sort of around at lunchtime one day. A very delightful, bright, beautiful little girl, very uh, full of life and joy, it seemed. And I was just watching. She, was, she would go off and do something, and then she'd run back to the group, her mother or the other people who were there, and say, what's next? And there's this incredibly infectious enthusiasm for life that was there. What's next? And someone would say, oh, he could do this, and she'd go off and do that, or and come back and, what's next? And her, her mother sort of commented, she always asks, what's next? You know, it was something very delightful. It was charming. There was no nothing wrong in it at all, in the sense of that. And yet, something kind of mischievous in my mind thought, mm, "I wonder what that's what's going on there." And so, when she came back one time, I said, "Kiko, what's now?" And she stopped completely still for just a moment. Her eyes went really wide, and she said, "Nothing," <laughs> and ran off to do whatever she was doing then next and it was just really spontaneous and beautiful and it also it seemed to me spoke to some of what goes on for us there can be that delight in the discovery of life and its potential and its richness and all that of course has its place and its importance in our journey and yet somehow if we imagine that that's all there is to what it means to be alive and that this What's now, question, has nothing to offer. In some way, we're still living as a child if we believe that there's nothing right here and that it's all in something else and something other. Coming back into the present moment, we do it in so many ways, on so many occasions, again and again and again. In a way, what we're learning to embody is a condition of non-movement, of not moving away. Even when the movements take place, we learn to actually disentangle from the movement away and rest more fully in the hereness, in the nowness, in the simple presence of conscious life, knowing itself, as it unfolds as things appear, move, disappear, however they move. And so it's important to reflect upon the sense of movement, the sense of going somewhere, of getting somewhere, this movement in time, the sense of becoming, is fundamentally what underpins the experience we call and know as suffering. The sense of becoming that the Buddha spoke of, bhava, taking birth. Not in terms of just the physical body, but becoming, forming a sense of identity based upon external experience or conditions. And by external, I mean equally inner experiences that arise that we take hold of, or that we seek after, that we pursue, that in the very placing of them as something that we seek after, they are other, they're already outside of ourself in order for us to, how could we seek something that's inside? Where would we go to do that? As soon as we're in a movement of becoming something, someone, 
gaining something, getting somewhere. It's always outside. It's always other than, different from, apart from what we could call the the primary location or orientation from which that view is arising. And in terms of what's next, it's always, it seems, it offers us this hope of something. This hope of something. And yet, ultimately, death looms over each moment as the end of something more, of something other, of something next. Death is the the marker that says time in that sense of a linear unfoldment, will just dissolve in on itself into nothing, ultimately. It will not have gone anywhere. It will not have gone anywhere. Any more than we ultimately will have gone anywhere. To contemplate our experience moment by moment from the perspective of There's nothing after this. What is it to consider that there's nothing other than this? And what happens when we think that or contemplate that often the attention goes to the nothing. And just as uh, the little girl, Kiko, we want to go looking for something. If we put the attention in the nothing after this, nothing other than this, the nothing seems scary or empty or hollow unattractive perhaps or maybe attractive interesting Mm, I quite like that and that's just a different form of becoming if we put the attention on the nothing and it's the sense of oh I'd like that nothing I've had enough some things they're they're hard work they're tiring they're complicated and messy that's just a different form of becoming the wishing to become nothing as opposed to the wish to become something to be no one as opposed to being someone That's just simply a different expression. The the craving for non-being is just as much craving as the craving for being. It's just as much suffering. And it's not unusual for people who get involved in the world of meditation, of silence, of stillness. Certainly for myself it was true at some point to have to really recognize and honor that actually there's quite a strong movement in me that's actually just wanting the nothing. Give me the nothing. Because the something's been bloody miserable on occasion, just to put it simply and directly. Yeah? And at the same time, of course, there is that sense of, well, maybe there is a something I'd like as well. Of course, we know that too. We might frame it in meditative terms. But it's like we put the emphasis on the nothing after this, nothing other than this, the emphasis on the another, on the nothing. But what about if we put the emphasis on the this? Nothing other than this. Nothing apart from this. What happens if we make the thisness the place we refer to or what we orient towards? It isn't about something or nothing. It's about this. And it isn't something or nothing. It's this. We don't move in a conceptual construction or in a sense of a 
becoming, a birthing, uh, that sense of bhava, of becoming, identifying with something or nothing. We're just left with thisness, thisness. And the movement of becoming is essentially, this is suffering. This is what's going on. When we talk about the suffering born of ignorance, we're talking about the movement of becoming, the movement of attempting to become something or become nothing, where all the emphasis is on the something or the nothing. That's what we orient towards, it seems. And in that we become attached to the particulars that define the somethingness or the nothingness. We become invested and concerned about prioritizing the the getting and the getting rid of. And whether, whatever it might be that we are attaching to in that process of becoming, whether it's a role, an activity, a particular quality, an identity, a sense of I am a meditator, the sense of I'm a spiritual practitioner, the sense of my meditation practice and experiences the things that arise within it, all of this, certain qualities that we might touch, beautiful qualities of heart and mind, of clarity, of peace, of wisdom and compassion, all these things, profound and beautiful, essential to an awakened life and a profound gift to to deepen and bring into this world more and more fully. Of course, not taking away anything from that. That is also an essential aspect of what we're here for, what we're doing. And yet, if we make out of that any sense of identity, if we make out of that who we are or who we are not in any way, it's suffering. It's suffering. There's nothing else we can say about it in the end. And it's like when we take hold of experience because experience is changing. Experience in its fluidity, in its movement, When we try and take hold of it, it's like holding on to a rope that's being pulled through our hands. And it hurts. We call it rope burn. It's suffering. And that friction between the movement of life and the urge to fix it, to hold it, to bind it to us, the irony is that the rope in that sense that binds us is not binding us, it's actually that we are gripping onto it. That is the suffering. And the sense of the fixation that says, I can't let go of this, because if I do, I won't know who I am. Or I won't become who I believe or wish I need to be. Believe I need to be, wish I could be. And there's a, there's a compulsion in that. Ajahn Chah once said, He said, don't try to become anything. Don't become a meditator. Don't become enlightened. Interesting, huh? Don't even try and become enlightened. So, where does that leave us? This here-ness, this if we're not orienting towards the, the something and the nothing. Because there is nothing after this. 
equally as we could say there is something after this. It just depends how we look at it, how we talk about it. But the something and the nothing in a certain way cancel each other out. There are polarities in the mind. Don't have any ultimate existence in themselves. It's ways of looking and thinking about. But this... The mind can't really kind of get its teeth into it, can it? It's like, how do we get hold of this? When it's not associated with a something. This sound, this feeling, these words, this body, this mind, this retreat center, my retreat, my life. All of these things we could say, well, there's this life, this feeling, this thought, the sense of space, all of that. All those things. Somehow we can get our teeth into it. We can kind of, mm, got it. The mind can configure around it. Can configure in relationship to it. <coughs> to simply be. To give up on becoming. To give up on something other. To simply be. And to know what that means directly and fully with one's heart, one's mind, one's body, one's totality. This is our potential. This we have all we need in order to be able to do, in order to be able to understand what this means. It's all here with us and for us already. When we relinquish the habitual urge with that movement in time towards becoming something or nothing or any of the infinite range of variations between those two polarities... We are simply here. And that's not something we do. It's something we recognize. We realize that actually thisness is here. We could say. And yet, somehow it's hard to see, isn't it? That. It's like, how, how do we get that? How does that penetrate? into us. If we examine the experience of movement, of activity, of the sights and sounds, smells, tastes, touch, situations, the phenomenal world that we call external to us and the phenomenal world that we conceive as internal, as, as my feelings, sensations, thoughts, bodily, emotional, psychological, inner life. If we examine the movement, the activity, in any situation, we see that the movement is attractive, it's compelling, it's engaging, it's, it seems there's so much there. And it's not surprising that we're drawn to focus upon it, to look at it, to begin to evaluate it and compare it. And here we are sliding into the, the swamp of dukkha. Because we don't easily stay at the just seeing. 
just noticing, just encountering. It's like we start to evaluate. We say, it's okay, it's not okay. And then we start to think about how it has to be different, better than, other than. And there's a place for all of that, of course, for the realm of development, of growth, of cultivation, of transformation of things in ourselves and in our world that is also important. And yet so easily our engagement with that becomes all-consuming and there isn't space left for the, for that which is somehow more simple, more immediate. It's like when we look into the the sense of what's happening, there's both a activity, movement, manifestation, and there's also a sort of, we could say, a stillness or a, a space or a potentiality in which that's happening. That we can start to discern in a way, it's like if we look up at the night sky, and admittedly there haven't been a lot of uh, clear starry nights recently, but you probably remember back in the sort of the dim recesses of the mind that yeah, that's something that you probably had the opportunity to observe at some time in your life. Maybe even in the last month there might have been one or two clear nights, I don't know. And what happens when we look up into the night sky? What I notice is that one starts to see the, the kind of the bright points of light and some of them are shimmering with these beautiful sort of translucent colours of gold or green or red or blue just twinkling in there. And then we see the mind starting to configure them into shapes and there's a, you know, there's the... The, the Great Bear or the Big Dipper or whatever you call it. And, you know, there's, there's this one here and we, we have the sense, of, oh, and that, that's my... We, we have a whole relationship to the way in which we construct shapes out of these points of light. And, you know, and I sit there and think... And I even miss that I can't see Scorpio in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. It's this amazing Southern Hemisphere constellation which doesn't, doesn't seem to appear, at least in this location. And that... And that's what probably goes on for many of us, I imagine. Certainly it's what I notice, looking into the night sky. And it's like out of these little points of light we configure meaning and we attribute sort of shape and image and relate them to our world and all that. And it's really easy to miss the fact that actually what's up there is this vast, empty, black, inky, textured nothingness. And in fact, of what's up there, that's almost everything. The, the, the little points of light, if you packed them all together, you could fit them in a tiny little corner somewhere, off to the edge. And you'd just be left with this wow, sweep of dark, velvet, black nothingness. And it's not what our mind tends to pick up. And interestingly... If we reflect on it, we realize that all the points of light and the images we can make out of them and the meaning we can attribute to them, none of that would happen without that backdrop of black nothingness in which all the points are revealed and by which we can actually recognize them as those points of light that we understand to be, in fact, vast balls of incandescent gas, but are mostly just little flickering spots. If we could see how each of those little flickering spots was actually something vast, massive, and in many cases larger than our own solar system, 
we'd get some sense of the scale of how much there's nothing out there. Because those are tiny little spots. And yet there's this, this, so there's this way we can see that the, that the mind is oriented to pick up what manifests, what shows up as a particularity. We see how the background is often not noticed. It's like on a movie. You're probably uh, familiar with the experience of going to a cinema to watch a movie. You know, it can be quite enjoyable, entertaining, sometimes even uh, educational. And what actually happens when we go to watch a movie? We sit down in a room, it's quiet, it's dark. So somewhere behind us, some coloured lights are shone onto a screen in front of us. And some vibrations are produced in the air around us. That's what happens. If we described it at a bare sensory level, prior to adding any meaning in terms of perception or significance in terms of cognition to it, just some light and some sound. That's what's happening. And yet in that experience, what arises is these patches of light. We attribute meaning and significance to, these are the good patches of light over here. And they're quite nice looking patches of light generally. And there's some bad patches of light over here and they're trying to get those good patches of light. And it's actually quite compelling. We get really concerned about the good patches of light. Have you noticed how that happens? Now if someone were to say, <coughs> some patches of light, we'd say, shut up. Don't say that, you're spoiling the movie. Now of course... The only reason we can see these patches of light is because there's a screen there that's reflecting them back to us. But if someone said, there's a big white screen there where all those lights are, we'd say, shut up. I don't want to know about a big white screen. The movie only works because we can't see the screen. If we could see the screen, we'd think, you know, you know when they get it wrong and they get it slightly on the curtains at the side, how annoying that is? Because suddenly it's become obvious what's happening. We can't really quite let go into the illusion that's being created, which simply replicates our inner experience. That's why it's so compelling. That's why we don't just do it with movies. We sit there with little two-inch screens these days, glued to stories unfolding in little lights and colours and sounds. <coughs> you know, and in the end, of course, you know the the, the good colours manage to not be sort of harmed by the bad colours and they went over and they meet some other rather cute looking good colours and go off together and, you know, all that. And we left with this nice feeling. But that can be what happens in our life too. The pictures, the colours, the sounds are moving, movement. In the movie, the screen is still. If it wasn't still, the whole thing wouldn't work. The screen. If you were trying to watch a movie on a sheet that's hanging in the wind, it doesn't work. There's something about the stillness that reveals the movement. There's something about the quality of silence that reveals the sound. That everything manifests equally reveals the potentiality in which and through which it manifests. 
the colours on the screen in the movie by virtue of the fact that we can see them are showing us, are telling us, are letting us know that the screen is there even though we cannot see it. At least we cannot see it with our conventional organs of sensory experience. We're not equipped in that way. And yet we are. To read a piece from the story Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse, which is not the story of the Buddha, but of a contemporary ascetic who happens to have the same name. Probably many of you are familiar with the, uh, the story, but there's a, a point in his journey where Siddhartha, having gone through many years of practice of austerities and struggle, has given up hope. He's tried everything, it seems, and even his companions who have been visiting the Buddha and getting some really good teaching. For him, it doesn't touch him. And he just goes off to sit by the river. And he's even contemplating throwing himself in, just bringing it all to an end. But as he sits there, and he's kind of given up on looking for anything, he's given up on any hope of his awakening and freedom, he just begins to listen to the river. And so... Hesse writes, says, Siddhartha listened. He was now listening intently, completely absorbed, quite empty, taking in everything. He felt that he had now completely learned the art of listening. He had often heard all this before, all these numerous voices in the river, but today they sounded different. He could no longer distinguish the different voices, the merry voice from the weeping one the childish from the manly one. They all belong to each other. The lament of those who yearn, the laughter of the wise, the cry of the indignant, and the groan of the dying. They were all interwoven and interlocked, entwined in a thousand ways. All the voices, all the goals, all the yearnings, the sorrows, the pleasures, all the good and evil, all of them together with the world, all of them together with the stream of events and the music of life. When Siddhartha listened attentively to this river, to this song of a thousand voices, when he did not listen to the sorrow or laughter, did not bind himself to any one particular voice and absorb it into himself, but heard them all, the unity then the great song of a thousand voices consisted of one word. Perfection. What we're interested in discovering here what lies at the heart of the Dharma 
cannot be perceived through conventional means. If we're interested to know what it is that does not move, that does not change, that is not born and does not die, we need to relax our preoccupation with the things that move and with the sensory orientation towards phenomena. Our sense equipment is remarkable to be able to hear sounds, to see images, to taste taste, to smell smells, to feel sensations, to have a heart that resonates, a mind that thinks remarkable, profound and precious and beautiful it can be indeed. And yet in the sight, the sound, the smell, the taste, the touch and the thought, That's not all of what's here. And yet through eye, ear, nose, mouth, body, and thinking mind, conceiving mind, that is not the organ for knowing that's needed here. When I was at university, I uh, did a paper in psychology. It was, the, I think, probably the paper I enjoyed the most. Um, I was doing a law degree at the time, so maybe that's not surprising. But um, There was something they described to us, which I didn't fully understand the significance of at the time. It was an experiment when we were looking at the um, psychology of sensory experience, in which the, the scientists had understood or recognised that for the most part, our sense equipment detects changing experience, and that's part of actually taking care of what we need in terms of survival, to know when things change. And so we're all familiar with the experiences they were of you know, hearing a sound suddenly, and the classic thing is when the fridge hum goes off, and we, we relax, even though we couldn't hear it. We didn't know that we were listening at some level to the sound of the, the fridge humming because we'd tuned it out. We'd become, it had normalised in a way that we stopped hearing it. And yet something was still registering it because when it stops we go, ah, relax. Or the classic thing is we walk into a room and there's a particular smell, and particularly if it's not pleasant. It's like, mmm. But after a little while, we don't smell it anymore. And we don't even realise it's there. And someone else comes in and we're surprised that they're having this experience. We thought the smell had gone away. <coughs> so what's been observed is that something, when an experience becomes constant, we stop registering it. If we have something pressing against our body, unless it's pressing with a, you know, unless it's, if it's something really extreme, such as, you know, a really, really loud sound or something, then it doesn't seem to go away in that way, but the sense of the intensity of it drops. We, it kind of, we almost become numb to the intensity. Hmm? And that's why often that ongoing process of numbing leads to stronger and stronger impressions being needed to generate a sense of, of vitality of life. But even with the body, if there's just some contact of you know, hand on the, on the leg, at some point we stop registering that experience. It just becomes quiet. 
And yet this never happens to us with visual consciousness. Hmm? We don't look at something and see that it disappears after a while. This is what the scientists notice. And they thought, oh, I wonder what's going on here. So they, they in examining this, this was done, I think, first, you know, probably in the 50s or 60s, um, they, they started examining what was going on. They realized, oh, the eyeball is moving. Constantly, rapidly shimmering back and forth like this, oscillating. And they thought, so the image and therefore the, um, the input striking the sensory cells is going to keep changing. It's going to keep changing. So they said, I wonder what would happen if that didn't happen. And they, they basically set up a, um, a way in which they could project an image that was linked to the movement of the eyeball so it moved with the eye. And they're projecting an image into someone's eye that moved as the eyeball moved so that in terms of the experience on the sensory receptors, it stayed the same. And what was fascinating is when they did this, the image appeared, the person saw it for a while, then after a little while, it was this constant experience, it just blanked. And the visual consciousness shut down. It's like nothing there. Stopped perceiving and seeing the image. And it's like this really clear scientific confirmation that our sensory equipment is not able to perceive something that is unchanging. But that doesn't mean that it's not there. In terms of the image, very clearly the image was there. Likewise the sound of the fridge. And so, what is it that doesn't change? How do we engage with that fundamental question? We can't do it through the familiar avenues of experience. And what we're asked to do is to let go of our fascination with experience. This fundamental and liberating renunciation that does not equate to rejecting the experience in any way. Or stepping away, in fact, from the experience to any degree. But simply to be fully, wholeheartedly and consciously present in the experience that's happening. But turning the attention starting to reorient towards the fact that it is happening rather than what it is that happens to be taking place in this moment. So there's, a, in a way, a shift that isn't a movement, but that's simply a reorientation and fundamentally 180 degrees turning on the spot. Instead of looking out towards what we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, think, actually turning towards that knowing of the fact of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking. The simplicity, the immediacy and the directness of the consciousness of the presence, of the simple knowing of this. That there's this is happening. World and mind co-arising, revealed, known. 
touching itself. This is what's happening. <coughs> This is what's always been happening. And this is what will always be happening. And it will always be just this. No beginning and no end. Just this. Rumi says, I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. That which we may imagine we are looking for is simply that which is itself looking. To understand that the movement of seeking is fulfilled by recognizing the nature of the seeking being not different than the sort. And the movement of seeking dissolves in on itself when we understand that that which is sought for is that which is seeking. And there is just this. And this asks us to let go of everything that we hold on to. And at the same time, embrace the unfolding of life. And it is this that really reveals to us in us and for us the heart of the Dharma that we seek. The freedom, the liberation and the simplicity of immediacy that is already this that we are. That is not something or nothing. Not knowable through eyes, ears and senses, but knowable, realizable, as the very heart of our life, the very heart of life itself.
So let's sit quietly. In the simplicity of just this. So may we all, in our practice and through our lives, come to see clearly with the wisdom heart that reveals the nature of suffering and blindness and equally the immediacy, the imminence of freedom and peace. And may we and all beings abide in this simplicity. The thisness that has neither something nor other, neither nothing nor self. Just this. For our liberation and for the liberation of all beings.